0: I'm looking for a new ballet class to take online, and I end up, you know, going through some, Google search, Yelp. I'm on the, all these different websites. It's impossible. Like two hours go by, and I'm like, "What? Like, why can't technology fix this? Why wasn't this as easy as finding a reservation on OpenTable?" And that's when I had the, you know, the epiphany idea to be like, "What if I could build this tech platform to help people stay connected back to classes?" And that was
1: where the company started. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, Pyle Kadakia never thought she would be an entrepreneur. Growing up, she says the only thing she knew for sure was she wanted to make sure she could always follow her passion for dance. The daughter of two immigrant parents, both successful chemists, Pyle says that she always made sure she checked the boxes to make her parents happy and then danced as much as she could. After spending time in the consulting world, she started to think more and more about entrepreneurship and realized it was the best way to combine her passion for dance with business and her idea for ClassPass became more and more clear. Since the company was founded in 2013, they've raised $255 million, now have more than 15,000 partners in over 80 cities across the world. At the center of Pyle's success is her ability to set clear intentions and goals and then budget her time to execute what's important. One of my favorite parts of our conversation that you're about to hear is the process she goes through to do just that. Here's Pyle Kadakia. Pyle Kadakia, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm really thrilled to have you with us, especially given just watching your story over the years. With ClassPass, I remember we were doing an interview, what, seven years, eight years ago when everything was in its infancy. Yep. So it's really cool to have you here with us now that you're expanding all over the world. Yep, exactly. It's amazing, the journey. The journey has been incredible. And you'll be in Dubai and Singapore and all over international in the next couple of weeks as well. So congratulations. Thank you. So as far as your story goes, you grew up in New Jersey. Uh-huh. Parents immigrated here from India, okay. both chemists. Yep. Was there pressure to follow in their footsteps? I mean, I did go to MIT. So <laughs> uh, I did,
0: you know, I think for my parents, it was really important for them, for my sister and me to have a good education, get good secure jobs. And I think it was because for them, you know, they took so many risks in their life that they were like, oh, well, you guys should have some stability. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I kind of liked that notion. But at the end of the day, and I always think about this now, the risks we took were at a different level to the risks that they took, right? Yes. We were taking it, a- they were taking risks to survive and to provide food on the table, right? And we're we're taking risks to go towards our dreams and change people's lives. So I think it's just a little bit of a different way to think about risk. But at the same time, I mean, they gave me this fundamental sense of education is really important, making sure that, you know, you always have a way to, you know, pay your bills, make sure, you know, you're You know, have an income. You're not making you know rash decisions, and obviously, before you quit your job to start a company, those are things you have to think about.
1: Absolutely, which we're going to come to in a second. I want to talk a little bit also about your background as a dancer. Yep, because you grew up dancing and loving dance. Yep, that is why I started ClassPass. So
0: when I was three years old, my mom's best friend started teaching us Indian folk dance in our basements, and I spent every weekend going to dance competitions and performing in places like Canada and Boston and, you know, the East Coast. And what it really did was it helped me learn about my culture because I was being born raised here. And so it gave me a sense of that identity. And at the same time, it found its way into me for like expression and passion. And I think what I realized is I loved being able to share who I was through movement. And I think movement then sort
1: of just started defining my life. And you mentioned going to MIT. So at MIT, you study economics and operations. Operations research. And you continue to dance while you're in college. Absolutely. And were you thinking at that time at all, I want to be an entrepreneur? Or was it back to mom and dad saying, stay on this steady and and narrow path?
0: You know, I think I was... I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. To be honest, that was not what I thought. I really think when I was younger, I wanted to make sure I would continue to dance in my life. So I think I was always trying to be like, okay, let me make sure I check all the boxes for my parents and then dance as much as I can. I think that's like the biggest decisions and what I was trying to handle at the time. Uh, The earliest memory I have is when I was in, I think I was in seventh grade and I had to build something of what I wanted to be when I was older. And I created a stadium out of Popsicle sticks, and I called it Pyle's Palace of Arts. And it had an ice skating rink, because I love to ice skate, and an Indian dance stage. And I think about that, because I think I always realized how much passion was going to be at the center of my life. And I think I always just wanted to make sure I was bringing that to people. So I always think about my life and my story about being about passion at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and always fighting for it when... Even when I was at school I had to fight for a way to keep dance in my life. Once I graduated, I fought for a way to keep dance in my life. And with ClassPass, I believe I'm fighting for everyone else to keep their passion in
1: their life. So when you were working at Bain & Company in consulting, yep. which so I came out of college, went into investment banking, yep. which is sort of if you're an econ major, it's kind of the path that you take where you either go consulting or banking or right. at least it was <laughs> back then when I graduated. Yep. And and you too. Did you enjoy
0: the work? So I think what's so amazing about consulting and what I learned when I was at Bain is how quickly you can become smart on an industry, right? Like, I think that toolkit of having that, and especially as an entrepreneur, I mean, you have to learn, you know, new jobs and new ways of doing things every single day, new challenges, new obstacles. And I think this idea of breaking down a problem in, you know, two days becoming an expert, being able to meet with executives in four days and be able to say, I know your industry as well as you do, means that you need to learn how to become smart on something really quickly. And I really believe in the whole 80-20 rule of, you know, try and get smart on the things that you need to as quickly as possible and focus on what's important. And so I learned that tremendously when I was at Bain. And I think the big picture combined with the small picture stuff that you have to do as an as a entrepreneur is a really important balance to have because sometimes you get kind of caught up in the execution, but you have yes. to keep a sense of where you're going. And I think because of also my dance company, more tactical side, which we can talk about too, I learned both sides around the same exact phase in my life. That gave me a sense of big picture plus the how do you get stuff done? Because you can't start a company without knowing how to actually get things done. Yes. Um, So I loved that. And then the last thing I think with consulting and especially my Bain class is there were the people in mm-hmm. my in my class and the network I got from Bain was incredible. And I mean, some of them are like Haley Barna, Birchbox, like Sam Lesson, who's at Facebook. You know, there's amazing people, Jeff Rader, Warby. Like, it's just amazing that we all were in the same class until this day. We have each other to call and, you know, to ask <laughs> for advice, you know. And all of us have been on these journeys now for, you know, five to seven years and it's amazing that we have each other to to talk to and that to me is like that type of network is something I wouldn't have received if I had never worked at Bain.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I think about that with banking too where there were tools that I picked up. I think there's a certain level of credibility that you pick up. I also ended up meeting my husband in the whole there thing. You go. So it worked out really well <laughs> yeah. on that front. Um so when people say would you do it again? Yes, I would do it all over again, but I'm glad that I left. I left at 2 years. Yeah, I left at
0: 3 and I
1: think one of the interesting
0: parts for me was while I was there, I didn't stop dancing. And I think that yeah. was a really important part. So the, right when I moved to New York, the first thing I did was figured out where I was going to be, you know, continuing my dance practice. And I would invite everyone from my Bain office to my dance shows. Like, I kept it a very center part of my life. But I actually think that's when I did decide to leave, dance did play a big role in it. Because I think I realized I wasn't going to succeed in what I knew Bain wanted me to be. And it was in conflict. Conflict with what I wanted to become, and at that point, I you know once again I think at every phase in your life, like I don't believe in being like I have to become this. Like mm-hmm. you have to let it evolve. But I just knew I had to give dance and this other part of my life a little bit more of a chance. And I knew what I needed to do to succeed at my job, and that's just not the vision I had for my life. And so I just I knew that I had to make a, a change in my life at that time.
1: How were other people around you reacting to that decision? Um. So it was interesting.
0: I think. Here's what I feel like I did. I feel like I didn't take a full risk. So I went and got a job at Warner Music Group. I worked in the digital strategy group there, which was an amazing time because the entire music industry was switching from physical to digital, uh, which was an unbelievable transformation. So my parents were okay with it because I still had a job, per se, and it was like at a good corporate, you know office here. And I still had, like I said, I was paying my bills. I could make sure I was doing there was a 401k. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think, you know, I had to remember most of my friends were going off to business school, which was something I wasn't doing. And so probably in the back of my head, I was like, wait, am I am I giving up something? Did you consider business school? I mean, I I did, but I knew I wasn't ready to go. Like I, I knew I had to I wanted to dance. I wasn't ready to make that like make that shift in my life. And honestly, I know this sounds kind of strange, but I just didn't know what else I was going to learn there because mm-hmm. I had just been to Bain for three years, which I think is like one of the greatest business experiences you could have. And so I feel like I wasn't I, if I went, I'd be going for not the right reasons, you know, and I think that's that, that could happen. So it just wasn't the right path for me. But I needed to figure out a way. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had to kind of find this like mini step in my life, which was, OK, I'm going to go work in like corporate America and For me, I think like I know like the how fast I like to work, like being in corporate America, it was actually it was easier in the sense of I it was more of a predictable schedule for me. Like I knew when I would get not traveling all the time. Yes, I knew I when I would leave and I could plan dance practice. I could make it to classes. I could continue to pursue my passion with a bit more um, with a bit more stability. And I think it was hard because there were times where like I would have a performance and then I would have a case that was like, in a different city. And I'm like, wait, how am I going to make rehearsals and perform this weekend when I need to fly? And those things, those were hard challenges at the time that I had to figure out.
1: You seem like a very practical person.
0: Yes and no. I mean, I think uh, when I, when, here's the way I I like to think about it. I set intention. And I think if you know your intention, the steps and the decisions become really easy. Mm -hmm. When you don't know your intention, you know, that's when I think, You know, things kind of you make the wrong decisions or they become a bit more
1: hazy or you sort of tread water.
0: Yeah. And I think I think I've always just gotten really good at when all of a sudden I feel like I'm in a hazy zone. And that happens to all of us. I mean, this isn't and it's a practice. I mean, this is why I think people like to meditate. I think the quicker you are to get to your center of like my intention, here's what I need to do and here's what I need to focus. And it's not coming from exterior reasons. It's coming from an internal goal and an internal purpose. You just go for it. And that's I think how I've always been in my life. Like once I make a decision that I know I'm I've convinced myself is right, there's like nothing that's gonna stop me from doing it.
1: How do you get there? Do you is there do you have a practice of how to be really specific and how to get to that North Star, your intention, as you say?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, about uh five years ago I started this goal setting process in my life. And so What I do, it's a pretty rigorous process. I won't get into all the details, but it starts with setting um, like an annual theme for your life, which is actually built on five words. So I think when people are like, hey, like what's happiness to you? Like it's not about some people don't want to be happy per se. Like, I mean, I know everyone wants to be happy, but happiness means different things to people. Like, is it about is it about love? Is it about is it about achievement? Is it about feeling um, like you're financially secure? Like, what is your definition of what success looks like for you in a year? And I think people don't always know what that is. So I always like to force myself to think about what, what does that mean to have mm-hmm. succeeded in a year? And then I, uh, I actually do a time diagnostic. So I believe time is, like, the most important thing we have. And actually the entire platform of ClassPass is built around time. And if you want to achieve anything in your, in your life, if you don't dedicate time to it, you're not going to do it. And so, I totally believe how you focus your time and what you do with your time is the only way to either make a change in your in your life to achieve something or to accomplish something. So, um, I break down. I do a time diagnostic, and then I like circle the areas of my life i want to I want to change or improve on, and then I write some goals in those in those specific areas. And I think the reason I started doing this is because, I mean like most people, I'm a type A person. And I realized I could succeed in most things in my life, like if I set goals, and I felt like, okay, great, like I'm succeeding at work, I'm succeeding, you know, in other areas. And then there were other things in my personal life or other things where I felt like I wasn't feeling that. And I'm like, why don't I apply a similar formula to those things, whether it's my taking care of my health, you know, we just kind of like, let these things sort of slide. And I started this process. And it's really, it's really just been this really great way for me to set these goals. And at The most important thing is is to not feel guilty about the things that I decided to not do.
1: Mm -hmm. I respect so much how deliberate you are about this because it really does seem like a framework that would be useful to everybody listening right now. Yeah. So, okay, you're at Warner Music, right? Mm -hmm. You are dancing. You're still getting to do that. But you realize that it's almost impossible to figure out dance classes.
0: Yeah, so what was so amazing is in my in my three years, actually, at Warner, I was there for three years, um, so I built this dance company on the side, and I had, uh, we you know, we sold out performances all over New York. We performed, we ended up on the cover of the art section of the New York Times, which was amazing. We ended up in this dance festival that, you know, once again, like, I... I spent six months trying to get into this dance festival and we got into this dance festival and we did this folk dance and he put like, it was Alistair Macaulay from the New York Times. He put our dance company on uh, the cover of the art section. It was like, that was the day by the way. So I was actually still going to go to business school. So my dad was sitting there being like, okay, it's great. You know, you've made this transition, but you have to go to business school at some point. And so I was actually studying for the GMATs and I was like, fine, maybe I'll just like prolong and go two years after my friends did. And I... I remember that it was a a Friday morning and I stayed up all night to get the paper in the morning and I got it. And then I took my GMAT books and I threw them away. That same day. I just knew that like my I was going to do something different with my life. And it was like a sign that I had to like continue to do what I loved because I'm like, I'm doing this on the side. Like it was just like a side hobby. And, you know, and I felt like every, you know, that there was such positivity and accomplishment coming from it. So I was like, I need to follow where this is going, and I just and every time I wanted to study for the GMATs, I was like, this doesn't feel right. And so anyway, so that was that was one part of something that had happened. And the reason I bring that up is I think doing the you know building the dance company taught me these really tactical things, right? So I wrote a check out for at to Alvin Ailey to the Citigroup Theater for thirty K to sell out a show, and I learned all these things about like tactically, like how am I going to you know get these these marketing things done? How am I going to um, to get the stage production done. Like these are just tactical things. And I think about a startup and there's you have to learn a new job every day, especially when you're you're starting. It's like you need to be the best marketer, the best salesperson, the best like product person. And you just have to figure it out on the spot. And I I really learned all those amazing skills just by having to to do it, you know, and I I set myself up to succeed. And um, I went for it. And I think those are the things that taught me like I can do it. And so I think building confidence through that those three year that three year period was really important for me. Um and then I got to this period where I actually felt like I was living two lives. So I would go to work every day and I was this analyst building, you know, models for, you know, what we should do with our digital licensing. And then at night I would go be this like artist, dancer, and perform at places like Lincoln Center. Right brain, left brain type yeah, of thing. And too. I think I just started feeling like I'm not going to succeed at either. And I was kind of in this really interesting place where I was like, something needs to change. And so um, I went out to San Francisco and I met a bunch of entrepreneurs. And actually, at that time, this was about eight years ago, there weren't many entrepreneurs in New York City. Yeah. And I met all these entrepreneurs and I'm like, you do this full time. It was this unbelievable concept to me of, you know, them building products and not, you know, everyone in New York was like in fashion banking consulting. So I didn't know this sort of way of life. And I was like, what if I could think of an idea? And I, I uh, get back to New York and I'm looking for a new ballet class to take online. And I end up, you know, going through so Google search, Yelp. I'm on the, all these different websites. It's impossible. Like two hours go by and I'm like, what? Like why can't technology fix this? Why wasn't this as easy as finding a reservation on open table? And that's when I had the, you know, the epiphany idea to be like, what if I could build this tech platform to help people stay connected back to
1: classes. And that was where the company started. Hear more from ClassPass founder, Pyle Kadakia, after a quick word from our sponsor.
0: When it comes to hiring,
1: you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. The early class pass years. So the company went through a handful of iterations from there. Yep. Talk about the ways that you decided to pivot because initially you mentioned like Open Table. The whole idea was that it was going to be a service along the lines of Open Table, but you weren't actually getting into the class and paying for the class. So it started as a search engine. So it was purely just, uh, you know, let's aggregate
0: every single class in. Manhattan onto one platform. So we listed like a million classes, you know, a week, and we had cooking classes and photography classes on there as well as fitness classes. And it was like a directory, right? So you could search by neighborhood, you can search by time. And it was this great technology we had built, and you know it was it had real-time reservation capabilities. And we built this for a year. We got into Techstars here in New York City, and we launched it, and it's like crickets. No one's booking. I mean, people are coming to the site and just browsing and then they would leave. And so I think so it was frustrating. I mean, it was it was actually a really, you know, I always say like companies always think like I, and now I know what false signals of success are like getting press and all these things are not that does not mean you've succeeded. Like, it's great. You know, somebody who can like, get you an article and get you, you know, to have press, but especially at that phase. And we had gotten a lot of press because we had just got out of Techstars But inside, I was like, I feel like a fraud because, like, no one's using the product. I'm not actually doing anything. I don't have a business. I don't I'm not making an impact on anyone's life. And so I remember that summer we like we started changing the buttons like on the site. We were like, maybe they can't see the buy button or the reserve button. (laughs) And we were just off, you know, and I think like I think what I've now learned is like you have to throw darts as an entrepreneur and like you're throwing darts and you want to get closer and closer to the bullseye. But you have to throw darts in different places and learn from each one. And so I think that was like our first dart. And I think I'm, you know, in in about two months, I was like, that's not right. And I I could feel it because after doing these button changes and we sent an email to everyone saying, like, go to class for free Mm. and no one went still. I was like, something is fundamentally wrong here. So then we actually started going and talking to the studios. So this is another important lesson I learned is sometimes we think technology is going to solve the problem for us, but I was solving a problem in real life. So technology wasn't going to solve the problem. If I couldn't solve this problem for somebody by talking to them or even via email, there's no way this technology, building a great technology was going to solve it. And so I realized in that moment we needed to figure out what was the emotional bond people had to working out. And and also on the studio side, what were their problems? So what we realized is a lot of them had free complimentary classes that they were giving to people to get new people to come in. And so what we decided to do was package together this product called the Passport. And I'm not sure if you remember, we yeah probably done I think an interview. You had the along. ten classes, at yeah. That it was ten classes for thirty days only, and you had to be a new customer. You could try ten different places, and at the end of it, um, we were hoping you would go and become a member of one of the studios. And so the whole premise was Legion at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, It was kind of like Groupon initially. Yeah, a bit more. It was definitely a bit more like that. And what we realized is, uh, you know, sadly only 15% of people were actually committing to a studio. And the internal bar I had was around 75%. And I say that because without that, I'm actually not doing a good job to being, being a partner to any of these studios. And at the same time, Why build a product for somebody for 30 days? Like, I just don't believe that's, that's like not a, that's not a great product, right? It's like you,
1: I don't, you're going to flush through all your customers. It requires a huge amount of customer acquisition. Yes. And and then on top of it, you're not keeping them.
0: Exactly. So I, I realized there was a fundamental problem. But then on the other side, what was so amazing is we started seeing people frauding us in the sense that they were buying this product over and over again. And with different email addresses. So the studio owners were yelling at us, being like, why is this person back? And we're like, you know, from a tech perspective, we were like, that's impossible. Like, it would shut off. And we're like, what's going on? And we started seeing multiple email addresses with, like, the same names. And so then we did a survey and we asked people, hey, if you could do this product month over month, like, would you do it? And 95% of people said yes. And so that was the moment where... I was like, we need to try a, t- a subscription. So this was June of two thousand and thirteen. So how quick were the pivots? Yeah, the so, first pivot was. So I started like, a few I mean, months. It, the first pivot. I mean, it took a year to build, mm-hmm. which was, by the way, don't ever spend a year building something. Like I learned that lesson. And then it how was, long
1: should you spend building it?
0: Two as quickly months? as you can test the MVP of the product, which means like. You can test the behavior. Look, not all products want to test behavioral change, but most products in the world, you're changing behavior. Like Airbnb got you to sleep in somebody else's home, right? Uber now gets us to ride in a car with strangers, right? Like It's like you need to fundamentally change how someone's behavior is. And like I said, technology isn't going to really Mm -hmm. do that. It's like, can you
1: actually figure out a way to test that behavior change in the easiest way possible? So the faster you build that product, so you can actually test it out in real life. Exactly, right. So, so, sorry, back to the initial question of, so the initial you build the product over a year. Then it's out in real life. It's out in real so 2 months in um I'm like okay we need to
0: try something new. So then once we started this idea of the passport it took us 3 months to build that. Yep. But by the way we built that very quickly like I mean I was making the reservations manually. Like I was putting in capacity restrictions over Thanksgiving. It was you know <laughs> it was like okay two spots here four spots here. Um it was built in a very manual way and, and I think that there was like such a beauty to that. And so then um, we, we launched the Passport then in, in that January. Um, finally, in April, I was like, we need to test something. And then June of that year, we we launched the first subscription. So June of 2013. That was quick. Yeah. So I think we got better and quicker at it. Like I said, I think the, the, the year in the beginning was probably the time when we were like, we're not in the right thing. You know, the other thing I think that was important during this time is like my team, right? Like I think... I had to. Uh, I had a big team when we built that over a year, and all of a sudden I had to downsize to six people when we started to pivot just to the passport. Um, and then we grew a little bit, and then we, when we once we wanted to become the subscription, you know, there was a little bit of resistance in my team because people were like, "Wait, we have a product that works. Like we have the passport was giving us revenue, profit, reservations, but it was the wrong product. It wasn't a good." Product for my customer long term, it wasn't a good product for my partners, so it was a little bit hard. And we were, you know, we were like two years in at that point, and I had to make sure we were building the right product. So I remember that there it being a little bit more contentious, but being like, okay, here's how we're going to do this because we need to try this, right, to see. And I, you, and as a founder, you don't know. There was no way I was mm-hmm. going to say like, oh, well, obviously the subscription is going to work. I was just trusting my instincts of what the data was telling me. And so finally, and when we launched it. Uh, We still didn't know. And then three months in, I mean, the the revenue and the traction of of ClassPass as a subscription just completely surpassed the Passport. And so we had three products in the market at that time. We had Classtivity, which was the search engine, the Passport, and ClassPass. And one of my advisors at the time, um, I remember him telling me, you know, Pyle, the Passport will be a chapter in your book. Like, shut it down because you would need to focus. Yeah. And I was like, no, well, maybe the passport will be, like, a good way to c- acquire customers for, you know, the subscription. But four months later, like, we, we shut the other two down. We officially changed our name then. Mm-hmm. So we were c- still called Classivity at the time. And so finally in 2014, we changed our name to ClassPass.
1: That is so key, by the way, figuring out the things you need to shut down and then also being able to deliver the message to your employees that – I don't know if this is going to work. Right. But I have this instinct yeah. that if I don't try this, it's going to be a problem, and we need to move forward. Did you learn anything going through that process of, A, how you communicate that information, and B, just sort of betting on your instincts and the data that's sitting in front of you?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you have to be a team is a team, right? Like, there's no, you can't walk in and be like, well, we're doing this because I'm the boss. Like, I mean, that's like one way to do it. Okay, fine. I think the better way to do it is lead from purpose and lead from the why of this. And I think, you know, in a way, like, I knew, I remember the team being like, oh, well, we can get that 15% up. And I'm like... Getting from 15 to 75 is, like, you're off. Like, if you were, if we were at, like, 65, okay, mm-hmm. maybe we can like fix it. We were just off, right? And so I remember being like, fine, maybe we can try one or two more things on that side just because I wanted to, like, make them feel like we tried, if that makes sense. Yes. But at the same time, like... I think it was better to get them involved and being like you guys build the plan for this. So like they then once they were convinced started building the plan of like fine here's how we're going to try this thing. I couldn't be the person to be like you look you have to do this you have to. I was like you guys build a plan like fine if we can't do this like right now how are we going to simultaneously do both but we have to get this out and try this. And then they their wheels started going with it and then they got excited about launching this
1: product too. Ownership is so important exactly. when it comes to a team. So then you're you're growing like gangbusters. You have tremendous success, and then all of a sudden the market shifts a little bit. It yep. feels like the customer and do you look at the customers as the classes as the the they're both are they're both I mean we're a marketplace so we, we our partners
0: are as important to us as our customers. I mean we have customers and we have partners. Sure. So yeah. So.
1: You you class pass over the years has had to change some of the model, correct? And there's been pushback on that. Yep. From your members in particular, how do you think about communicating those things? And also as a business leader, how do you think about choices where you ultimately have to make decisions mm-hmm. for the sake of whether or not that thing is going to exist anymore? Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, look, some of the decisions we've had
0: to make were hard. And at the end of the day, I think I always think back to. You know, when I was fighting to get someone to go to class and it took me two years to get someone to go to class. And then I was like, wow, people are going to too many classes. Like it was solving two different problems. Right. And I think it was there was like positivity in one that was amazing and even, like, my CFO CFO and I would talk all the time, and, you know, he'd be like, you know, people would kill for this type of engagement. Right. We had a different problem. We were like, okay, well, some of that's breaking our business model now, right? So we had to, I mean, you can either just sit there, and, like, that wasn't going to work either, right? And you, at some point, look, for any startup, like, VCs can't fund your entire Your entire model, right? And your entire future. You have to make sure you're, you know, and I I think what's amazing is like some of these models, they've grown really big off of just VC funding. And at some point, you have to make sure you're self-sustaining. And I think for us, like, we just knew we needed to align the business more. So between our partners, customers, and business, like, we always think about it. It's actually our marketplace. It's three people, right? It's like we need to make sure we're okay. Partners need to be okay. And our customers need to be okay. And we want the center to be aligned versus feeling like when one person's winning, someone's losing. Those are never great business models to have because you're always going to be at, you know, some, at someone's, you know, becking call at the end of the day. And so um, – you know, for us, we had to make some tough decisions along the way. And I think, you know, we we did it in a it was interesting because I feel like we did it little by little, which was actually a bit more painful. You know, it's like Do you think that was if you could go back, would you still do it little by little? You know, once again, I, I never like to you, like what we were talking about earlier. Like I, we learned so much. So you don't know. But like, yeah, it's like, should we have increased the price more? Should we have not? You know, yeah. it's like little things like that. But there was no way to know because, like I said, we were a real life product. So the only way to know how the numbers were going to change was by putting it out there. And so what was so interesting is when we finally, um, you know, did increase the price of Unlimited, which one of the things is I always wanted this product to be accessible. Like, I don't believe working out should just be for people who can afford it and all. It needs to be something that anyone can do. And so that's actually when we were like, okay, what are we going to do to have video or other means of people, you know, being able to work out and even like gym time and things that were just easier to get people into because it's just important for everyone to be able to work out at whatever price it might be. And so then we started building, you know, we started having these lower tier plans. But I think one of the coolest things, and we just recently made this awesome transition is now we have credits in the model. And so what we've now done is made sure that everyone, like you can go to as many classes as you want based upon... The credits, you know, you want and people want different experiences on ClassPass and you no longer have any limits. Right. So you can go back to any studio you want as many times as you as you want to. We have all the premium inventory, which we didn't have before because we needed to fit it into our cost bucket, which we don't have the constraint of anymore. And so we've opened up this model to say you can go to any class you want to. And it's really about, you know, whatever the price and the, you know, we basically have a whole dynamic pricing algorithm now, where which we work with with the studios. And my favorite part about the credits model is the vision of ClassPass was never just to sell fitness classes, right? And so now we're able to expand into another category because we have credits.
1: Your role has now gone from CEO to executive chairman on the board of directors. You swapped yep. roles with your executive chairman. When you look back on that, so this is about a year and a half ago. Yep. How did you come to that decision? Was it difficult? You know, for me, like,
0: I have always been someone who wanted to make sure that I never fit into a box. Like, I wanted to add value to my company in the best way possible. And at some point, I felt like I was trying, everyone was trying to put me in this box. And I was like, this is not how I'm going to add the best value to my company. And so I knew, I knew pretty early on, like, what I just wanted to make sure I was creating the vision for my company and pushing that forward. And that was the only thing that mattered. And I think the second thing, the only way you can make a decision like that is by having the right person. And I think for Fritz and me, like we've just been partners for so long that it was just so gradual and easy. And I think a lot of like I talk to a lot of founders and I, I always I feel really lucky and privileged that they I wish have they that. were in your position. Yeah, because like honestly, I get to do the things I love for my company and the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm not bogged down. And look, Like let's be honest, when companies grow, there's a lot of other stuff you all of a sudden have to do. And I'm not necessarily bogged down with a lot of those details. And I can focus on my vision, my product, my brand, my customers, and the way I want to.
1: So break it down for us. You talked about the things that as the executive chair you'd be working on. What would be the things as CEO that would not be as delightful? I mean, I think,
0: you know, you have to – there's, like, a lot of just, like, employee stuff, right, that you have to do meetings, that you have to be in, like – it's, it's it's not just, about the vision as much. It, it's not that it's I mean, you have to like Fritz leads by vision, too. I mean, he wouldn't be in that position if like that wasn't the case. Like he definitely leads from there. But there's just more tactical stuff like that you have to do. Right. It's like it's making sure like, you know, legal is done. Like it's a lot of these tactical things, which I'm not saying aren't important. They're very important. And by the way, you always have to have somebody who's doing it. But you're not necessarily in like hey, like, how are we thinking about, like, launching wellness on the product, right? And I'd rather be thinking about, like, how we're going to get someone to book all these other incredible experiences on ClassPass and not just be thinking about that. What's been the toughest lesson to learn along the way? From this whole thing? Um, Let's see. You know, I think the most important thing, and, like, I don't think – it's not that it's, like, a lesson. Is like, I think you can't get product obsessed. You have to be mission obsessed as a founder, And I think like I have learned that more and more is that my mission means more than and more than like what any current product iteration of my company is. Right. It's am I moving towards that? And you have to be able to make hard decisions along the way towards your mission, because if you're a missionary, you're a missionary. And I just know that like every day you have to be moving forward and making progress on that. And you kind of can't get religious about any one thing and be willing to pivot and iterate into what's best for the direction of getting to the mission.
1: You're basically saying there's the big picture. There's this grand thing, the light at the end of the tunnel, whatever that is. And there's going to be steps along the way that you're not entirely on board with. Is that the case? It's it's not that you're not going to be on board with it. I think they're just
0: going to be um, like you're going to face hard decisions along the way. And I think you where know, the answers aren't clear cut. Yeah, they're not clear cut. And I think if you're making them for, like I said, external reasons, you're probably going to make the wrong decisions if you're making them because they're really leading you towards your, you know, like, for example, like, I think sometimes people are like, here's what I want the product to look like. And here's the product. And it has to have these colors and it needs to be like this. And, and you launch it. And you're like, why? Like, and and, you know, like, even for us, like, I mean, we changed our name, you know, it's and I remember at the time, I and mean, we probably—I don't know—maybe had done twenty thousand reservations, and you know, there are times where you're like, "Well, we're so big." It's like in the scheme of things, we're not that big. You know what I mean? And I, I keep that mentality today. I'm like, class fast, class fast, but like, we're still small in the scheme of the impact we want to have on the world. We're small, and I think you have to always keep that mentality. So, what is it? What's your grand vision? Yeah, well, our vision statement is every life fully lived. And once again, it goes back to time, right? So what we want is people's time to be lived as fully as possible, which means we as a product, what I think is amazing is we get people to book time. There's really no other app that books hours of your time like we do. And we have this beautiful relationship with our customers where they log on and, you know, they're seeing all the things that they could do. And they don't feel like obligations; they feel like these amazing opportunities. And we've made these experiences feel like opportunities to people. And so our vision is to be the final, or to be the destination for all your free time. And we want, with soul nurturing experiences, that's like our our thing is we want them to be things that you love to do and give something back to you, or it's not worth it. So that's really it. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Um, you know, I think I remember when I started the company, and I was, you know. There was a lot going on. I think people like told me to stop dancing. And worst decision ever. Because that is why I started the company. And that's the heart and soul of what leads me, right? And it's, you know, we're talking about mission. Like, what's gonna get you as a founder to show up every single day? It's because you believe in something and that you're solving something for the world. And if I lost touch with that, why would I fight through those things? And so it's so important. I, you know, I think whenever founders start something and have a deep why, it's like don't lose connection to it. You have to continue to make time for it even when, you know, everything gets crazy because it's going to and you're going to be busy and have to deal with like you know a lot more other priorities you just have to focus and make sure you schedule it in were those friends and family telling you that um it was a mi- it was probably a mix of people i mean i think you know it's so funny and as a woman like as a woman you get other all the, all these other pressures too you know my mom's like you have to get married like all these things and i'm like this is not like it's not it's not you know fair in a way um, and so I think it's just a matter of, you know, making sure. I, and this is when I, I've i learned to shut everyone else out. And I was like, I have to listen to myself.
1: Did you immediately think that or was that learned over time? Learned over time. Absolutely. I
0: mean, I think I think uh, when. in In stages, I think people go through phases in their life, right? Like there are times where you're like. You know, you're in they're in different aspects of their life. Right. Like you might be doing really well at work and then you might be doing really well in like doing some project. And I always when people are always like asking me like, oh, how do I know what I'm good at? I'm like, reflect, like think about your life. Like there has to have been some time in your life where whether it was like being the number one like athlete or something and something you did, how did you get there and why did you do it? And I think it's about applying that pattern. Whenever I am like intentionally setting my, like I know I'm doing something and I'm doing it right, like I don't question it. When I'm in places, once again, the hazy periods, that's when it's like always, hey, should I be doing this? And that's like when I think I let other people in is when I'm not clear. But the clearer I can get about what I
1: want to do, then all that noise goes away. Kyle Kadakia, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. All right, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is actually entrepreneurs. And it's the team over at The Event Company from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Hello, I'm Addie Graham Kramer, founder and CEO of The Event Company, where we build dreams. Since 2013, I've been the chief dream builder leading a talented team that plans, designs, and produces corporate, nonprofit, and social events all throughout the country. Now, we're passionate about creating one of a kind experiences for our clients and their guests, all up until that last toast of champagne. Now, one thing that I've learned over the years for those aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening or watching would be to find your tribe, find those individuals that are unlike you, those that challenge you, because those are the individuals that will help you grow well into the future. Cheers. Congratulations. And a special shout out to Addie Graham Kramer from the event company who wrote in. Thank you, Addie. And congrats to you and your team. We really appreciate all of you supporting the podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more of their story, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from the event company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week or if you have career questions, Shoot me a note at no nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, before we go, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.